19th century comes to you today from Ngunnawal country in the Canberra region. We're specifically located in a very special building on the beautiful campus of the Australian National University. The building is one of the most evocative here, the Australian Centre on China in the world. The centre was established in 2010 and this distinctive building was designed in collaboration between the Canberra architectural firm of Munns Slymore Architects and the Beijing-based architects Mo Atelier Zetto. It is nestled among superb gardens which change with the seasons and contain plants endemic to China. Its beautiful spaces have become a hub at ANU in helping to build Australia's knowledge and understanding of China and has become an important scholarly locus. Today I'm delighted to be joined by the Australian Chinese artist John Young who's today brought his daughter to campus to commence her undergraduate life at ANU. When I learned that John and his family were to be in the capital this weekend, I immediately thought that this would be a wonderful opportunity to talk to him about his extensive research into the history of Chinese people in Australia, particularly in the 19th century during the upheavals of colonisation. The research he conducted has given rise to an ever-increasing body of work that he has exhibited widely in response to the extraordinary narratives he discovered on this journey. It is fair to say that Australians are largely taught a very narrow slice of the history of emigration to this country, which is largely Eurocentric and ignores the many people from nations all over the world who are motivated to leave their homes and journey to this so-called newfound land of terra australis. When we do learn of Chinese emigration, it is positioned entirely as a gold rush story. This narrow view does not allow for any of the spaciousness or nuance underpinning the individual stories, which are so fascinating. I've asked John to join me here at the centre of China in the world at ANU to tell us about the remarkable stories he unearthed during his research into his Chinese history projects. Welcome, John Young to In the 19th Century, and thank you very much for agreeing to share your Saturday morning with us. Thank you for inviting me, Lara. Um, it's a, quite an important, auspicious day for you, dropping your daughter off to university for the first time. Indeed, yes. So we are really grateful that you could um, take some time to share um, this research you've been doing, mm -hmm. and of course the body of work that you've created. Mm -hmm. Um, but before we start, um, let's talk a little bit about Eric Satie, mm -hmm. um, in particular the uh, Gymnopédie Number no. 2, which was the music that you very kindly selected, and of course it's also actually one of my favourites, I think the favourite of many people, um, and it also was composed and published quite late in the 19th century, that sort of turning point into the 20th century. So why did you select this particular piece of music? Indeed, it was, it was actually composed in nine, uh, 1899, I, I think, number two. Um, the reason why I actually chose Satie uh, is primarily because I felt that uh, he had an incredible influence on the history of 20th century music and uh, uh, new music, uh, all the way down to uh, you know, people like John Cage uh, and... Uh, all the work that Satie had done in the 18th century, sorry, 19th century, didn't actually, uh, in a sense, um, come to fruition. Um, all the radicality of his music really didn't come to fruition until, until the mid-20th century. Uh, we can even say that through John Cage, then brought along 
one of the greatest art movements in, in 20th century Fluxus, the late 20th century. Uh, and in fact, the interesting thing about Fluxus was that it was one of the first uh, fully fledged contemporary art movements that included a lot of Asians uh, in there, of Korean and Japanese artists, women and men. Um, so I think that Sati, in a sense, opened up um, the world, uh, not just in music, but also uh, in a way how he paved the way for Cage um, to, to open up this, this whole world uh, contemporary music you know, and uh, sound. So I think that that's why I chose him. Um, and also because, of course, a lot of contemporary art and music is sort of almost ahistorical and yet with Sati you really have a sense of resonance about mm. the work from the 9th century. I know that he's very much um, influenced by Pouvier de Chavannes, the paintings mm. of, and so that sense of classicism and that sense of resonance is still there, which is quite unique, I think, uh, from, from the late 19th century down to the 20th century. Mm. I often find with his music you have this sense of stepping over from the classicism yes. and the, 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 the rigour and the traditional um, themes and um, ways of doing things of the 19th century into this 20th century which is sometimes deliberately quite discordant yes. and wanting to change key and swap sound and um, you know, basically upheave an yes. upheaval of things. Yes, not unlike, you know, Bella Bartok is felt similar too, you mm. know, I mean, uh, Bartok's influence on minimalism as well, with Philip Glass and people like that. Mm. Yeah. So it's a very good soundtrack for our discussion and perhaps some, given that we're talking about Satie and the influence in the 20th century, we might actually start in the wrong century and begin mm -hmm. with your own journey to Australia in the 20th century, just so people can understand a little bit about the, the the journey that you made here to Australia and how you became an, an artist. Um, so when did you come to Australia and where specifically did you travel from? Well, um, I'm, I was originally uh, born in Hong Kong and I travelled uh, to Australia to study in 1967. Uh, 67 was a, an absolutely crucial year in Hong Kong because it was the time uh, of the 1967 riots where... Um, there were a lot of dissatisfaction about the workers' condition uh, in a lot of the sort of factories in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was booming at that stage, but you know the working conditions weren't as good. And on top of that, uh, it was also influenced by the Cultural Revolution in China, and the, and basically a lot of the um, violence spilled over, and. Uh, it was a situation where, because my mother was a, one of the earliest women politicians in Hong Kong, they felt that it was more important uh, to have their children overseas to study uh, in a much safer place like Australia. And so because of that, uh, my family, uh, well, I came out by myself, but eventually my family became part of the diaspora, Chinese diaspora uh, mm. in Australia. And how old were you when you came to Australia? I was 11. 11? Yeah. That must have been quite a remarkable experience of just junction for you, coming from Hong Kong to Australia as an 11-year-old. It was and it wasn't in a sense. Uh, I think that it, it, it was in the sense of the Chinese heritage, the southern Chinese heritage that I had, but it wasn't because 
Hong Kong was also a British colony at that point. So basically, uh, a lot of the road rules, a lot of the sort of you know government buildings and things like that were fairly similar to mm. Australian colonial, you know, nineteenth century sort of uh, uh, environment. Mm. So I think that uh, there was a sort of familiarity, uh, beats the the hot, bright Australian mm. sun in Sydney. I think that that was uh, fairly similar in that sense, yeah. Um, somehow there's you know, a, sort of an, an irony in our discussion because you, you became, once you came to Australia and you finished school and then went to university mm. then finally went to art school, um, you became you know, in many ways a conceptual artist of, mm. the, of the late 20th century mm. um, and yet here we are talking about... Um, uh, the 19th century, and indeed this podcast is all about the darkness and light of the 19th century. Yes. Um, and yet I've invited a contemporary artist who's interested in the philosophical underpinnings of image making and the meaning of material culture right now um, in what we could possibly describe as the sort of post-postmodernist era. Um, so how does history inform your work and, and what is the relationship between contemporary culture um, and the past? Yes, I, I think I can sort of try to answer that uh, perhaps in two ways, in a much wider context between history and, and art, full stop. I mean, I think that uh, the, the use of history in art... Uh, has more or less stopped since the avant-garde in the sense in the 20th century because it, after all the avant-garde was meant to be all these modernist experiments of breaking uh, old paradigms and you know breaking uh, rules so so it's not a question of uh, any attempts at a continuation of history in a sense uh, although in contemporary literature for example history you know features quite uh, substantially, uh, but I felt that it was, in a sense, it could very well be a radical step in Australia to actually uh, look at history in relationship to contemporary art practice. I mean, there are precedents to that in Europe, of course. I mean, the works mm -hmm. of Joseph Boyce or the artist Anselm Kiefer, for example, really um, use that sense of resonance in their work. Uh, however, I just, well, perhaps in Australia, one of the few people that do the, did do this was, in fact, Sydney Norland, uh, with the Kelly series, for example, uh, has that sense of reference to, to the past. Um, but if you look at what is being done in general in, in our practice at the moment, uh, I think in general it's more of a social-political comments about society as it is but it really uh, hasn't got a, a sense of continuity and resonance about history um, which I think is more prevalent perhaps uh, in Europe or you know uh, mm. so that was one of the reasons I would like to I wanted to tackle it from a much wider sense mm. Yeah. It's interesting, the 19th century was one of the main genres, was mm -hmm. history painting. In fact, one of the most important genres, yes. in fact, was history painting. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things often women were excluded from participating in because they hadn't been taught to paint the figure. Um, but 
you know, history painting became very academic mm. and it also became the most valuable paintings were those that depicted history. And then with the 20th century, we began to question the whole condition of history and what, you know, the, the limitations of looking at history in a linear fashion and in a progressive fashion, etc. Yes. cetera. Yes. Um, so, but here you are in, you know, the 21st century, really, mm. deciding to tackle history mm. and to, to, in fact, create a project called the History Projects. Um, so maybe you could um, take us um, into what, how did this begin? How, mm. where did you, what made you decide one day that this is, has to happen now in this project? <laughs> because it's become a very large project. It has. It, it's been a 12-year project. Yes. And... Uh, and there was a lot of soul-searching, I guess, at the very beginning when I, when I launched into this. And uh, I must say that uh, I actually, in fact, launched into this in Europe when uh, I visited my gallerist, Alexander Ox, in Europe. And he took me uh, around Berlin and had a look. And, you know, there were so many things uh, of resonance, great resonance in Berlin, going from Walter Benjamin to, you know, uh, everything really, you know, yeah. Fritz Lang, um, everything uh, in the 20th century. And uh, so, uh, but from the Australian point of view, what really started was um, a sense that I guess, uh, first of all, you know, as you know, a lot of what I make. Uh, has got a lot to do with cross-cultural issues or transcultural mm. issues right from the beginning. Uh, but then uh, in the 90s, there was all this discussion about people wanting to have a sense of um, identity in their cultural positions. And I really felt that uh, it wasn't really getting anywhere, that sense of, of discussion about uh, identity. Um, in different from different cultural positions, uh, I felt another way to tackle all that was actually to look at the the ethical positions that people make when they cross cultures, and I thought that that was for me uh, a bit more of a interesting sort of um, uh, position to take and to look at. So, so basically, at the very beginning, I looked at historical events, primarily of trauma, um, such as uh, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer or the Nanjing Massacre, for example, where, where uh, sort of 20 odd foreigners saved 300,000 Chinese people. Um, in those sort of narratives, um, the, what was central was the fact that some people actually cross cultures and they made ethical decisions to actually save other people. And I felt that that was a very interesting scenario to look at. Um, so that was what led me into looking at historical events. And, um, and then after several of those projects, uh, I suddenly noticed that in Australia, um, there has never actually been a visual articulation of the Chinese diaspora in Australia. There's only one painting, there was only one painting 
which was done by two Nanjing professors in 1988, uh, called The Harvest of Endurance. And it's a very long scroll. And um, sort of looking at the Chinese from around about 1830 onwards, different events. But this scroll was actually done by two Nanjing professors. So it, it had a sense as if China was the, the origins of everything uh, in Australia. Well, as, far, as a matter of fact, it's not, because I think that the Chinese diaspora, who's been outside of China for you know, a century or two, has just as much influence in Australia as the people from mainland China, in a sense. So, so I decided then to, to actually, uh, being an Australian person, to actually try to uh, make a visual uh, understanding of the Chinese in Australia from then onwards. So there's been quite a number of different projects, maybe 12 projects now that I've done of installations and paintings and, and sound work, video work, performance work uh, that, uh, you know, attempt to articulate this, this uh, condition. And a lot of it is, is concerning the 19th century, which was uh, uh, because the Chinese were fairly active in Australia ever since 1840, in fact. So, yeah. And maybe you could um, tell us a little bit about where, you know, this is a diaspora, mm. where did the Chinese people come from? Because it wasn't all just Beijing or Shanghai. It was from, you know, the many, many points. So would, can you talk us through the places that they, they came from? In yes, China? yes. They, they were uh, primarily from uh, Guangzhou or Canton in Hong Kong mm. because basically it's, it's, it's the southern part of China and Macau as well um, that were, you know, seaports in a sense. And, and so a lot of uh, people came from... Uh, the south of China uh, initially as indentured labor and then they came uh, because of the gold rush and of course the Chinese there started this diaspora not from towards Australia but first it went they went to San Francisco and then to Australia and then after that they went to central Otago Palmer River and all the way to White Waters Rand in South Africa yep. so there, there's a huge circuit of um, Chinese gold miners in the 19th century that traveled the world and uh, in many cases that travel was actually a sense of um, well it's almost ritualistic for for a young man apparently to if you if you're not so well off to actually be um, to borrow your money and then you come to try to find gold and then if you do find gold you you, you go back to your village and you marry and you know live happily ever after so the story goes but obviously there are very interesting narratives of people that you know never went back yes mm. and and also people didn't necessarily always um, pan for gold or dig for gold there was a no. whole lot of industries that grew up around in fact gold mining and so people could pursue other professions other than gold mining and in fact that did happen indeed i mean you know um after well sort of a little bit after the gold mining or well, the, the the heights of the chinese in australia uh, at least in victoria there were 40,000 chinese there around about the 1860s mm. so uh there were a lot in ballarat alone there were close to like uh, 30,000 chinese because i did a built a monument in ballarat to commemorate this uh they they became uh 
some of them were ministers, became ministers, but they also were market gardeners and they were also um, physicians as well, mm. you know, using Chinese medicine to, to help the local population. So they, um, there were quite a number of different, you know, professions that they did. One thing for sure, though, was that not many women came out because a lot of the men were out here, you know, seeking their fortune, seeking their fortune and, mm. and returning home. So the women that were that did come out were pretty interesting yes. you know, people as well that accompanied, uh, the, you know, their husbands or whatever. But n generally, not so much. You know, generally it was mainly the men that came out. Um, speaking of uh, um, Chinese women who came to Australia and also who were born here, um, I would want to share some research that I came across last year in the Art Gallery of New South Wales Library while I was researching for 19th century women artists travelling between Australia and Britain. And mostly these were Anglo-Saxon, white, middle-class women. Mm. However, I came across this really superb miniature on ivory, a self-portrait called Me, mm. um, by an artist of the name Justine Kong Singh. Mm. And she was born in um, Nundal in New South Wales in 1868, so quite early. Um, and she trained at the National Gallery of Victoria School and the Julian Ashton School. Um, and then she travelled to London in around 1915. Mm -hmm. And she was the second daughter of Lee Kong Singh from China and his wife, Ellen Mann. And according to the Australian Historical Society, her father, Lee Kong, was a butcher and had stores in Tamworth and Nundal. And she seems to have left Australia around 1912 and exhibited miniatures in the Paris Salon and the Royal Academy and the Grosvenor Gallery. So these are all key exhibiting places for women. You couldn't exhibit there unless you yes. had some stature and some clout, I suppose. Yes. Um, she lived at Chelsea, so right in the heart mm. of artist Bohemia, where many women travelled to. And she also painted a miniature of Madame Zay, who was the wife of the Chinese minister, who I, I gather must have been the ambassador to London at the time. She wound up in Mallorca in Spain, where she remained for 20 years until the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. And when she returned to Australia, um, she um, continued to paint, and her brother Otto apparently became the first Chinese-Australian lawyer in New South Wales, mm. which is you know, quite a sort of fascinating story that's gone from this sort of gold rush narrative to mm. this expansive international narrative. Mm. And so when I read this story, I immediately thought of your history projects mm. and um, wondered about how she fits into that. Um, you know, her father comes to Australia during the gold rush and his children are born on the gold fields. Um, but their family story is so much more nuanced than that. Um, I'd imagine that you found many stories like that of the Kong Sings. I mean, they must have been one of many. And so did their story play out in the lives of many Australian Chinese in yeah, the 19th century? It, it did. And, and in a sense, you know, it's one of the most remarkable things is that we have this idea that travel belonged to the 20th century. Mm. But in fact, you know, people travelled hugely, you know, in the 19th century as well. It took them a bit longer, but they certainly travelled a lot, uh, which leads us also into the first project that we, we can talk about, which was 1866, mm. The World of Lo Kong Ming and, mm. and Chang Su. So um, let's talk about Lo Kong Ming. <laughs> yes. Um, this is one of the first projects from the, uh, the Chinese uh, in Australian history. Um, and I... I was very interested in the two narratives that that made this this particular project up. One is the life of a person called Lao Kong Ming or Lao Gong Ming, 
in Cantonese. Um, and the other one is a life of a very young man who came to Australia when he was 16 called Zhang Asu. Or if I am correct, the direct translation of Zhang Asu is Zhang, which is his surname. Asu is really number four. Oh. So he's from, he's from a, a relatively, you know, sort of peasantry sort of background. So let me start with Lo Kong Ming. Lo Kong Ming um, is a very worldly young man when he came to Australia. Now he was born in Penang uh, in 1831 and um, his father was already tr trading from British Penang uh, with Mauritius, with London, with Calcutta uh, and Lo Kong Ming as a young man was sent to uh, Mauritius to learn English and French and so by the time when he came to Australia uh, in sort of uh, 18, around about 1853 he came to Australia um, he was already speaking English, French, Cantonese, Chinese and Malay as well he, he spoke four languages and um, and he came with six boats and at the height of the trade of these six boats uh, they were trading the equivalent of like about six million pounds per boat six million British pounds in 2010 so you can imagine it's significant it's isn't absolutely, it? absolutely yeah significant amount of trade that he, he actually brought to, to uh, Victoria at that point and he came as a young man in his 20s uh, but he he established himself straight away um, by basically supplying a lot of supplies for the Chinese gold miners that were here so he actually um, brought in rice from Calcutta and the interesting thing was sugar from uh, the Mauritius because Chinese tea sweet tea was uh, becoming very popular I mean amongst the general population in Australia and uh, certainly in, in the UK. So uh, this idea of sugar came in as well. Um, and he brought, of course, uh, a lot of implements and, and sort of things that are of use for the gold mining fields uh, and people as well from Canton, from, from you know, southern China. He brought his workforce with him. Brought his workforce with him, or gave them passage to come here. I see, here. right? Yeah, mm. and um, and re in return, he he got some of the gold from these uh, people, and basically uh, brought more sort of goods and brought them back. So that that was his trade. Uh, he tried gold mining just for a very short time and uh, didn't get anywhere in, in uh, Ballarat and Bendigo and, and, and actually then went back to uh, sort of uh, British Penang vowing never to come back to Australia again but then when he was back in Mauritius that there were a few people that actually convinced him that the trade would be quite advantageous so he came back again and uh, so when he came back by 1860, he married um, uh, a Tasmanian woman by the name of uh, Mary Ann Prussia. Strange name, but mm. uh, and they had 12 children together. 
and uh, made a very prosperous sort of living firstly in I think in East Melbourne there's still the Georgian building standing in East Melbourne which he um, lived in and subsequently sold to Evan Berry I think mm. and uh, and then after that he owned I think it's from around 12 acres uh, in um, Melbourne uh, between uh, I think it's uh, you know until his death he, he died quite so he would have been quite a prominent figure in the colonial scene in Melbourne he was, in that period. He was. And that's why my exhibition was in fact called 1866. It's because um, in 1866 he was one of the founding share owners of the Commercial Bank of Australia. He was on the board of the Commercial Bank of Australia, which then became Westpac. Right? Right. So, so it was a very significant move. And... Uh, Quite ironically, by about 1867, there was a um, one-pound note that was created uh, from the bank, which was bilingual. Then that one-pound note uh, had Chinese and English inscribed in it, and it's still held at the Westpac um, gallery at the moment. And that w- that um, one-pound note forms part of the, the sort of scheme of your project, really, doesn't it? Because yes. it features in the exhibition. Yes. And I think that might it be worth... It was embroidered, yes. Uh, it was embroidered, that's right. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the history projects, each one is actually quite a large installation. I think we probably should explain that mm. to listeners, that it's not um, just one work depicting history. It's actually a whole series of elements, if you like, um, yes. that speak to the narrative um, and bring forth nuances like the one pound note. That's right. They, for example, in this particular project, there were 60 drawings and photographs, each one metre by 70 centimetres each. Uh, the drawings are made out of chalk drawings on, on blackboard paint, and then there are a series of photographs of the same size. So so uh, they all form this tableau on the wall, and then there will be paintings or you know films or whatever it is that I've made as well to accompany it. But the most important thing is not really just the facts about this. 1866, as, as I said, was a very interesting juncture because it was really the heights of Lo Kong-ming's uh, time in Australia when he, you know, was so prominent in the sort of Victorian social world, elite in a sense. He was a, an elite merchant, I guess. Um, and he was supported a lot by the Victorian government. Um, in fact, Edmund Berry actually uh, invited him in 1867 to actually curate an exhibition of Chinese painting in Victoria. That's extraordinary. Yeah, but he, he answered that he can't do that because there wasn't any good Chinese painting in Australia. <laughs> so, in so, Australia. In Australia. So, I mean, you know, he had a lot of sense of culture as well. Mm. He also built uh, two buildings which are still standing in Little Burke Street, uh, built by the same, I guess, uh, architects that built the Parliament House. So, so really, you know, he was really on the ball culturally also. Um, so he... Uh, 1869 was when, when he was asked to do this Chinese exhibition, but much later, um, about 10 years later, he got a lot more active into uh, sort of, you know, political action of trying to protect the Chinese 
uh, gold miners and the rights of the Chinese people in Australia. So, for example, um, there was a poll tax when you arrive in, yes. uh, in, into uh, Australia for Chinese gold miners. But after that, there's also a residence tax, which is equivalent to thousands of dollars nowadays. And so uh, he, he was continually writing to the government to try to have these taxes eliminated. And the reason mm. why I think um, uh, he wrote the Chinese question, there's a, a good book that he wrote with uh, two other authors called The Chinese Question, is really, uh, he had a sense of pride about being Chinese, although mm. he's actually saw himself as British as well because he's from British Penang. Um, he was both. Yes, and, and that's fascinating, isn't yes, it? Yes, and in the 19th century, as you know, there was a lot of agreement between the Chinese Empire and the British Empire uh, and, and sort of rights between the two uh, which were agreed upon. And in fact, those sort of rights between the Chinese Empire and the British Empire was not actually um, exercised or agreed to in the Australian colony. Mm. So he was basically saying, well, you know, we should have these rights because, after all, Australia is part of the British Empire. And yet Australia wanted to run by these sort of new on-the-ground rules, On-the-ground really. rules, yeah, yeah. Um, which is, you know, like still in its formation. I think that's possibly also because there was sort of an anti-British feeling mm. establishing itself early on in the colonies in Australia. Yes. Um, so there was this sort of push and pull between am I British or am I this new... You know, some people staunchly felt they were very British, but others felt quite um, angry about Britain and didn't want to identify with Britain. Yes. So you'd have these clashes, I think, Mm. between the law and philosophy and culture. Yes. And talking about law, this was a very interesting thing. Uh, 1866, as I said, the project is called. And the reason why I say it's interesting is because now we come to the next person in the project called Zhang Asu. Yes, I'm looking forward to hearing Number four, as I call him, Mr. <laughs> Zhang, number four. Number four. <laughs> he was born in Zhongzhan in southern China, which is very near Hong Kong. It's actually, in fact, my, my old family's um, you know, province as well. And he disembarked in Port Melbourne in 1855 at the age of 16. So early, isn't so it? So early and yes. so young. And from 60, 1863, he was in Belaba. Um, in a regional town, and um, and he was a gold miner basically. But I would suspect not so literate because he came here when he was sixteen. Certainly don't, didn't know any English, but even his Chinese wouldn't have been, you know, so uh, well developed or educated. Um, although after saying that, there were actually, believe it or not, a lot of gold miners in. Uh, the area of Castlemaine and all that, who were not just abject gold miners, they were also political dissidents mm. from China as well at that point. Um, but going back to Zhang Asu, he, he came here when he was 16 and, and he stayed um, being a gold miner. He attempted to sell spurious gold, which was uh, a sort of gold that they tried to mix with, I think, copper or bronze and try to sell, sell them off as genuine gold. Right. And he was caught <laughs> in doing that. Uh, I'd imagine ma- that the penalty would be quite high for doing <laughs> that. Yes, he was jailed for two months. 
for the charge, he was dismissed. Um, and then after that, uh, he had a bit of an altercation with a couple of other Chinamen on the gold fields um, over his girlfriend, who was a who was an Australian uh, Anglo woman, as well as the fact that he claimed that um, these other Chinese men actually stole one of his fowls, one of his um, chickens. And, and so there was a fight and somebody was stabbed and, and so he was then taken to jail. Uh, and he was jailed, uh, he was not badly injured, but you know, it was bad enough to, you know, that he was wounded and he, he was sort of acquitted, but um, the, because he didn't speak any English, and he was probably quite an eccentric sort of person. He was he was placed in an, an asylum, oh, <laughs> which was the go-to place for anything unusual in the yes, 19th century, yes. basically. Yes, and it could very well be that he he could have been suffering from opium withdrawal because you know like they were all oh. smoking opium, which was legal yes. on the gold fields at that point. So he was a young man who was basically stoned out of his mind, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, and so he. He was uh, put in the sun, but the the sadness about all that that he was finally incarcerated, in fact, for twenty three years. Twenty three years. Twenty three years until his death in an asylum. Ah, oh, that's terrible. So he was he was uh, around uh, Maryborough at first, uh, but then he was then taken to uh, the Sunbury Asylum, and uh, and died in nineteen hundred. So he so he was in asylum. But the fantastic thing about Zhang Asu is that if you go to the uh, State Library in Victoria, there is an, a very tiny diary that he had written. And this very tiny diary, which is a palm size, well, it's barely a book really, it's, it's a collection of pages which he stitched together and wrote in pencil, is a diary that he kept when he was in the asylum. And there were maps in there. There were very, you know, the maps were extremely detailed of where he lived mm. in Balaba. Um, north, south, east, west was wrong, but the rest was <laughs> correct. And uh, and he he basically tried to uh, record all that incidents of the altercation with the other Chinese people and uh, one Australian. Um, that he was actually innocent. He was trying to prove his innocence. He was trying to prove his innocence. And the irony is that he was trying to write this by 1867 when the Duke of Edinburgh came to Australia. And he was he thought he could take this to the Duke of Edinburgh and be exonerated, you know, and be let free. As a British separate. person. As a British person. Which, of course, he, he never... He never even got anywhere near that. Let he never had that audience with he the He never Duke. had that audience. But this diary is still around. You what know? a remarkable artifact for us to still have. Absolutely. And it's written in a sort of pigeon, pigeon English. It's, mm. um, it's, you know, I speak Cantonese and I can understand the way how he, he wrote. Every, all the words and the nouns and the verbs are there, but it's actually in in a sort of Cantonese order, right. and and so nobody actually understood it so well, you know, mm. locally. But um, and but the interesting thing was that he started this diary also in 1866, the year that Lo Kong Ming was at its height in his own 
sort of you know professional in his own life so so disparate stories of absolutely disparate stories of low coming being at his height of his of his life and Zhang Hasu was really the beginning of the the end of his, mm. you know. And did Lo Kong Meng ever try to lobby for him, or did they? Did he know of him? I don't or? think they knew each other. And and the funniest thing about this is that in 1867, uh, when the Duke of Edinburgh came, Zhang Hasu was trying to hand this diary to the Duke of Edinburgh, and whereas Lo Kong Meng, from the other side of society. Be, still being Chinese, or on the other side of Victorian society, attended a ball with his wife, you know, Marianne Prussia. And Marianne had this beautiful dress on, uh, attended this ball to celebrate, you know, uh, the uh, a fancy dress party to, to basically celebrate the coming of uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. Mm. So, you know, there's just like this uh, very interesting irony of the Chinese people. And these two men basically, in the sense, bookended yeah the 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 society of chinese people in victoria and it's i guess also a testament to where education can take you because lo kong meng obviously was highly educated spoke yes. multiple languages yes um, his father had set him up as a trader um whereas um uh, john asu was put on a boat and let to find his fortune without anything much behind him. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think there was, you know, it was a very difficult place to actually survive in the colonies. And when you look at the, those amazing paintings of the goldfields mm-hmm. that every goldfields museum mm-hmm. or gallery has, mm-hmm. they're literally these townships that were built overnight almost, like within the space of five years from mm-hmm. 1850 to 1860, mm-hmm. a whole city had grown. Mm-hmm. And, and here you have two people two people that uh, one is extremely worldly you know he low coming was already buying stocks and shares from a british steamship company mm. you know by the mid 1800s whereas Zhang Ashu had really barely any idea of survival in a sense and because of that he was in fact incarcerated and mm. because of his uh, lack of english you know that he couldn't actually articulate his own circumstance or condition and yet he tried so hard he tried so hard with what he had he tried so hard in his diary and there's also some very interesting things in the diary you know uh, there were these so-called hallucinations where he in his sleep he saw gods that spoke to him and directed him to actually do such and such and this and that and i and i can totally understand this and and if if people read this diary they would have thought that he was mad that he was insane but with all these hallucinations Mm. but in fact you know in chinese culture even in my grandmother's days um they would they would have these sort of episodes my grandmother would have these episodes where uh, spirits are meant to descend and Mm. and take over your your personality and my grandmother used to speak in in uh, different tongues much lower on her voice and so Mm. and so forth so it's, it's, it's actually considered as quite ordinary to have this sort of sense of possession mm. of the spirit. And indeed, in fact, another later podcast is, all going, is going to be all about spirituality in the 19th right. century because right. it was actually very, um, very accepted yes. that you could connect with the spirit world. Yes. And in fact, it was, you know, which is quite counter to our view of this very sort of rigid 
society run by um, traditions and stereotypes. Yes. Uh, and yet here was this ability to be able to connect to this other world. Yes. And m the mediums that they built were developed to, in fact, make those communications quite extraordinary too. Yes. And, uh, well, for example, even in the art world, Georgina Horton, who, who exactly. actually was a spiritualist, one of the earliest abstractionists uh, from the 19th century. Yes. And all of her drawings are fr guided yeah. from the spirit. Yes. And Hilma F. Clint in Sweden. Yes. Indeed. So it's, uh, it's another area that I think we've sort of lost sight mm. of in the 19th century. And the other thing that was never really... Uh, uh, made evident was that before 1901, Australia was an extremely pluralist, extremely sort of open society in a sense. You know, the Chinese were actually having not a bad time mm. being accepted in there. The fact that Lo Kongming could marry Marianne Prussia and was invited to the highest, you know, positions of society meant that there was a sort of an acceptance of different cultures you know in australia mm. and then federation came along and the white australia policy and it changed a lot you know even the population of us chinese population you know uh dwindled drastically after the white australia policy in 1901 but uh prior to that it was a very very interesting society very in the, in the 19th century in australia yeah i know i agree so so maybe we can talk about the next history project mm. um Modernity's End, Half the Sky, mm. which is actually a story of, of Chinese women. Yes, um, this one glides a little bit, you know, into the 20th century, I'm, I'm afraid. But so That's I'll, okay. I'll talk I, I think, I think um, the universe doesn't know about our time frames. <laughs> yes, I, think, yes. I think things, things, don't things do just keep rolling on. Indeed, indeed. Um, this, since the last one was about two men, in Australia, two Chinese men in Australia. This is about two Chinese women who were actually born in Australia. Uh, and so they, they were really second generation Australians in a sense. Um, one, I, I must predicate this by saying first that I'm really thankful for a lot of the Chinese um, Anglo, uh, Chinese Australian historians, you know, people like Kate Bagnall and uh, Sophie Lloyd-Wilson, Paul McGregor, and, and, and John Fitzgerald, amongst a lot of others, uh, luminaries who actually guarded and researched on the history of the Chinese, because basically uh, a lot of the Chinese uh, didn't have this sort of research skill to keep this history, and I'm really grateful that a lot of the Anglo historians have actually done this, mm. uh, and have done it with such passion. Uh, Gordon Grimway, the, whom we'll talk about later on too, so all these people, in a sense, unearthed, you know, a lot of the, these lives. And so this next project, Modernities and Half the Sky, uh, is about two women. Uh, one born uh, actually in Sydney. Um, Daisy Hawk was born in Sydney. Um, and uh, the fa his, her father arrived in 1880s as a gold miner, and her mother was an Australian-born Chinese. Now, they had, I think they had banana plantations in Queensland as well. But the interesting thing about these uh, Daisy Hawk is that uh, she was a uh, quite affluent sort of person, and they decided in those days, in the early... Um, 1900s 
to move back to China, to Shanghai, which, as you know, Shanghai at that point was extremely metropolitan. It was mm. like New York, Berlin at that point. And so, so basically they wanted to, you know, go to another sort of, uh, you know, very uh, cosmopolitan place. And uh, Daisy and the whole family moved there and started the first department store called a wing-on department store, which still exists in Hong Kong and places like that. Department store there, so it was an Australian mm-hmm. that started the first department store in China. Gosh, that's fascinating, isn't it? And, and uh, when she moved there, you know, she lived in a very large mansion and started one of the earliest... Um, sort of Chinese European fashion houses as well uh, and of course they all went to uh, universities and sort of married young men that were potential you know uh, I guess leaders of the industry uh, her life was interesting in the sense that Daisy actually stayed in China during the revolution and she had children there as well. And after the revolution, of course, she was, uh, in a sense, uh, reassessed as being a capitalist. Oh, and, and so she course, was sent out. Yes, entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. And she was sent out in the fields uh, to tender for pigs, pig, pig tendering, basically, and, and toilet cleaning and everything, most abject things possible to, to re-educate her as a good communist. Uh, so she suffered a lot, but in the end, uh, she decided to stay in, in, in China and became an English teacher there uh, up until the very end. She did return to Australia to visit occasionally, um, but here somebody who started all the fashion house and all you know, department stores and so on and so forth there, uh, being an Australian, I mean, Australian has this reputation, don't we, so of, yeah. of doing really remarkable things, but then, you know, it fades into history and nobody realised what Australian has done or all these elsewhere. Um, and uh, so she stayed, you know. And the, the next person, other woman, was Alice Lynn Key. Now, Alice was interesting in the sense that she was a Rutherglen girl and she was a very, very beautiful girl and so she went to Shanghai as well and she uh, was became a sort of uh, involved in the film industry there in Shanghai and as you know the Shanghai film industry was similar developing at the same time as Hollywood at that point so you know DeMille would used to mm. you know visit and Marlene Dietrich you know all these people were there uh, occasionally you know connected with the Shanghai film industry and Alice Lin Key was involved in that and she was also at, at one of the first radio commentator um, women commentator uh, known as Little Miss Shanghai <laughs> and she she did very well out of that too and she also married uh, a politician who worked with Chiang Kai-shek and, um, and during the Second World War she came to us back to Australia to try to raise funds to, to help the war-torn you know, conditions of China. Um, but when the revolution came in the 1940s, she basically disappeared. And some people think that she had left for America, but there's not so much evidence of where she actually ended up in. Uh, 
So here's these two women that went through enormous changes in their lives. Absolutely, mm -hmm. you know, as Aussie girls, mm -hmm. to have gone back to another place uh, where there were revolutions and uh, the, the start of capitalism and modernity, modernism there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and yet being also hugely successful in doing so too. You mm -hmm. know. I think they were absolutely remarkable in that sense. Do we know much about the department store in Australia that she set up? Uh, the Wing On department store she set up in Shanghai. Shanghai. Uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong, yeah. Oh, the one in Hong Kong is still standing, Wing On. It's, it's a very, um, you know, it's like a Maya department store here or something. It's, it's a very old department store. And um, I'm not quite sure whether the rest of the family during the revolution moved back to Australia, but she certainly didn't. And you could see in photographs of her transforming from this sort of upper class, you know, girl going to the best universities, studying psychology, mm. you know, in the 1920s or 30s. It's, it's quite radical, isn't yes, it? Yes, which was the thing to do, obviously, yeah. you know, it's like doing critical theory nowadays or something, you know, and, mm. you know, shooting the breeze in their Buick, you know, yeah. uh, with her boyfriends partying uh, in Shanghai. And then all of a sudden the revolution came mm. and she was, you know, tendering pigs and cleaning mm. toilets. Uh, and it's in, they're interesting stories because we often hear of women wanting to, you know, from Australia, Australian-born women, um, desperately wanting to travel to France or England. Yes. They're the sort of two key destinations we hear about. Yes. But um, in fact, these stories show that, that, that there was a much more nuanced um, yes. itinerary there for, yes. for Australians. Yes. And that many did, in fact, um, go to China. China. Yes, because Shanghai was such a capital at that mm. point, like Berlin and New York, as, as I was saying. So, so in that sense, I think that here we are uh, with yet a second generation of Chinese Australians. Uh, you know, in contrast to Lo Kong Ming mm. and Zhang Hasu, second generation that have, and I would call them not so much Chinese from China anymore. They were really you know, people that were outside of China, yeah. the Chinese diaspora, uh, you know, uh, and the Chinese diaspora is huge now, and they don't necessarily, you know, live with the same political values or the same social values as, as the Chinese from China. Mm. Well, this is true. There's always a diversity of, um, mm. of, of views and philosophies and politics and um, you know, socio-economic positions. Um, yes. There's no one linear um, answer at all. Yes. Um, one of the most fascinating of your projects, well, that I find the most fascinating, is um, the Nun Living Nose, yes. which was a whole area of Australian history that I wasn't aware of hmm. until your project and looking at the work in it, um, which is really about Chinese who came to Australia and um, travelled through the Northern, um, Northern Territory and Northern Queensland mm. and met with Indigenous communities. Mm. Mm. And in fact, sometimes just never continued on to the goldfields. In fact, stayed um, in Queensland, married into Indigenous families mm. um, and in fact, um, you know, really uh, altered um, the experience in that part of Australia. Yeah, it's, uh, you know... Uh, this is an interesting project. This is the third project that we're discussing today. And uh, not much is known about this project. The only person who 
actually a historian who actually discovered this was a person called Gordon Grimwade. He took a particular interest of, to this project, this big walk that the Chinese did. Um, and he took a, a sort of a, several sort of display boards of <laughs> all these pictures and, and narratives about this around Australia to, to show this. He was so passionate about it. But not many people know about this. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, of course, know about the robe walk. Now, the reason why the Chinese actually walked so much was because they were trying to uh, dodge the poll tax because when the Ch- Chinese miners actually arrived in Australia, they had to pay an enormous amount of money just to land, and uh, particularly, say, in Victoria. So what they did in in Victoria, with the Victorian goldfields, is that instead of landing in Victoria, in Port Melbourne, or wherever, they would land in Adelaide, in South Australia, or near Robe, in South Australia, where there were no tax, and they would walk. So the, the Robe walk was uh, 1857 to 1863, 16,000 Chinese walked for uh, three so 500 kilometers from Rome. such a long way I've, I've done that drive have you yeah and to think of walking it yes <laughs> very beautiful in a car with yes. the landscape whizzing past <laughs> and walking on foot walking on foot with all your shuttles yes with everything you own everything you own um and of course they whilst they walked they discovered other towns as well they created other towns as well like ararat was created by the chinese you know see this is another part of history that people aren't aware yes, of. Yes, yes. Um, Ararat and the foundation of Ararat. Yeah. Um, so that walk is very famous. Uh, and um, it's, uh, you know, the walk to Bendigo um, and Ballarat. It's um, only, uh, well, apparently 16,261 Chinese went walk men and only one woman one woman <laughs> see the women are so smart they know that's <laughs> they know never going to work <laughs> never going to work so tell us about walking though in the Northern Territory and in North yes. Queensland because that would have its own complexity. indeed so instead of Ballarat and Bendigo in Queensland there was Palmer River which was where gold fields are in Queensland and uh, Croydon and Palmer River and of course there was whole tax and of course they couldn't land in Queensland so what they did was that they landed in Darwin and with not much instructions. So they were saying, you, if you go to Darwin, you walk down the Tennant Creek, you turn left <laughs> <laughs> and follow the, the sunrise until you almost hit water, which was Cairns. Right. So, um, well, you know, Palmer River and Croydon was a little bit before Cairns, admittedly, but... So it was an enormous walk. It was like two to three thousand kilometers walk, and uh, and this happened in the late eighteen hundreds to early nineteen hundreds. Um, these people, uh, I would not. There's not much uh, really um, record of specific people who did this walk. Uh, Although there were already swagmen in the 1900s who actually did the same sort of walk as well. Um, they had two routes. One was cutting right across from Tennant Creek straight across to Palmer River. And the other one was over 
the top of Australia, which was crocodile territory. Yeah. You know? So it was quite treacherous. Um, most of them, a lot of them didn't make it. I can imagine because that is not a hospitable no. countryside without shelter, food. Exactly. And communities are absolutely kilometres apart. Yes. And, uh, and some of them actually stayed between the border of Northern Territories and Queensland and sort of married uh, Indigenous women and they had children and, and became vegetable gardeners you know, on, on the border area. And uh, quite interestingly, some of the half Chinese, half Aboriginal children, uh, some of them were actually taken back to, to Canton, to southern China. And so there are actually probably, there's likelihood there are some people of uh, indigenous blood in, you know, in China. Mm. And the Australian indigenous blood in China as well. And you found some very interesting letters, didn't you, relating to um, a woman who was trying to yes, locate, locate, I think, her yeah. niece, is that yes, right? Yes, yes, yeah. That I've got to do more research about, that, that there's yet, yet another several narratives there of people who return to China as Eurasians or as indigenous, you know, Asian uh, people that got stuck there or could never return. There was something very um, poignant in one of the letters I think you've used in that work, which mm. was this handprint. Mm. Is, is it a handprint that's on it, I think? Yes, yeah. It was... Uh, As it, sort of some sort of proof that this is the, the person yeah, I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. I've yet to, to do this more, mm. to do this project. Um, so that, that was... But what interests me in that particular one was, from an artistic point of view, uh, was at what actually happened in these people's heads as they were walking, you know? Like, you know, when, when you don't belong to the Chinese sort of, well, culture anymore, really, because you've left that behind to be a gold miner, not, not, probably not to, ever to come back to us, to China, and you're not accepted by the Anglo world either. So it's like this purely existential situation, mm. almost like not exactly a Forrest Gump situation, but like at li or the road, you know. Yeah. Uh, there is a purely existential situation where they are just walking and to survive, and that is all, you know. Yeah. What happens in their heads? Is it, you know, it's certainly not Aristotle or Confucius anymore, but like, you know, is there something transcendental? Is there a Godhead? To save you is there you know like in a way it's uh, probably as I think what you say this keep walking to survive you just have to keep mm, putting one foot in front of the other yeah and there's also this hope of the destination yes. that keeps you going yes. sustains you on that very difficult journey yes and a lot of them didn't survive you know or there, there are photographs of, of just skeletons you know like <laughs> at the bottom of lamp posts or fence posts mm. and things like that well, this can be a topic for further research because I, I know I, I've met Indigenous people who have Chinese heritage mm. in Australia and mm. I think there's actually probably quite an interesting it community is. of people who will have history to share. Yes. Um, and yes. so I think this is an area that can be uh, explored mm. more fully mm. in a very interesting way. Mm. So I think we're going to close on 
one of the more difficult stories and histories which you more recently worked on, mm. which is the Baranong Afray, which took place in the the cherry capital of Australia, which is a small town close to Canberra called Young, mm. um, which is very fertile pastoral land. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very old Australian colonial mm. um, towns there. Mm. Um, and it's Wiradjuri country. Mm. Um, and it has a very um, important indigenous history as well. Um, so things happen there that are not particularly endearing, I shall say. Um, and you travelled there and you met families and you've actually, I think, stayed at one of the old homesteads there. Mm. And it's also, of course, the historic site of the Lambing Flat riots. Yes. So um, can you just take us through this a body of work in this project yes. and the stories that you found because you spent quite a bit of time in young researchers? Yes. This, this project was actually initiated by the Centre for Contemporary Asian Art in Sydney, uh, curated by... Michael Doe and Kayla Tai, uh, and uh, and I've worked together with a young artist called Jason Fu to go to Young to basically start doing research about this incident in uh, 1860 to 1861, where in fact arguably the most serious civil disorder uh, event in Australia. Uh, it was a series of riots between 1860 to 61 of the local gold miners against the Chinese gold miners in, in Young, in Living Flat. Um, and so from November six, nine, uh, 1860 to September 1861 was this, when the series of riots happened at Birogong, um, which is the present day Young. Uh, round about the 30th of June 1861, um, a mob of two or three thousand European miners, North American and Australian-born miners, attacked the Chinese miners and drove them um, into the night uh, from their fields. And some were, well, well, they were assaulted, but some were literally scalped. Mm. And, uh, and so all these miners, Chinese miners, ran. And, and they heard that there was actually one place which gave them refuge, which was a farm, um, which was owned by a young man called James Roberts, um, 20 kilometers away in Karawong. And this, this young farmer gave two to 3,000 Chinese miners refuge on his farm for almost a month Gosh, uh, in the freezing cold. And, uh, to keep them, you know, like safe from from all the rioters, and so I I was very interested in that, primarily because I'm not so interested in the violence in all these events, but but the benevolence. It's very similar to the earlier um, history projects that I did about the Nanjing massacre and the, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's the benevolence of people when they see the other turning up. You know, and this is a very clear case where uh, this young man, James Roberts, actually, you know, um, helped uh, all these miners and saved some of their lives. Um, in fact, the the family who is it's still the Roberts descendants who who actually Roberts never had a family of his own, but I think uh, his brothers did, and so. 
the family still owns the farm. Oh gosh. And so um, you could still feel the resonance of everything that's happened there, you know. And certainly uh, on the gold fields where they were chased out, uh, if you go to, you know, that whole area in Yang, um, the actual area um, is still all dug up and it still, it, it still remained quite depleted, um, you know, from the gold diggings. Um, because they're not exactly alluvial digging. They did dig. It's not like in um, Ballarat where it's just alluvial sort mm. of gold mining or, or in Ballarat where they actually went down. But, but this is sort of like the earth was actually quite sort of disturbed in a sense. Um, so, you know, in a sense, the, the Chinese is, uh, as well as the Anglos also, the Chinese were also responsible for depleting this, you know, mm. this, this, this indigenous land as well, you know, during those days. Um, so I, I found that the, the backdrop of this was interesting, primarily because um, these uh, series of riots um, sort of started the, the New South Wales Parliament uh, to initiate the Chinese Immigration Restriction and Regulation Act in 1861 and the Chinese Restriction Act in 1881 to curb Chinese immigrants. And it was because of these acts that led up to the White Australia policy mm. during Federation in 1901. So, so really it had huge ramifications for the Chinese presence in Australia. Uh, and there is also a bit of irony, personal irony for me, because I arrived in 1967 in Australia, which was the last year of the white australian mm. policy so so this spanned almost you know like from 1901 to 1967 a period which uh, chinese were not welcome in australia and i arrived literally on the year you know when uh, when this all finished so but the imprint of this legislation um has such far-reaching legacies yeah. because uh, you know you can end legislation but you can't and the cultural nuances or the cultural oh, violence right. that, that, in fact, such legislation brings oh, through exclusion. Well, that's exclusion. right. In fact, uh, when I, we did that exhibition, this exhibition, um, I mean, not that I want to give them air, but the Australia First Party actually wrote a 12-page uh, thing in the website that vilified myself and Jason Fu, the other artist, to say that we are Chinese agents and and so on and so forth you know it That's was extraordinary I, I i never knew that these sort of things could actually happen but in this day and age but it does well i think it's also you know i find it distressing that one of the first acts of parliament among the earliest acts of parliament mm. that we mm. were debating in mm. this country was the white australia policy mm. Mm. um you know i find that and it's a terrible contrast to the fact that at the same time, we were one of the first countries in the world to give women the vote. Mm. Um, mm. So there are these sort of contradictions. But, um, you know, it's those kinds of, that sort of lawmaking that, in fact, has, um, you know, creates such division. Yes. And, and yes. persecution. Yes. And it kind of rewires the way people think. Yes, and hopefully it doesn't, you know, sink into it as a, as a national myth. But mm. that othering is certainly something that you could still detect 
you know, in normal people's speech and discourse occasionally, you mm. know, there's this whole idea of, of the sort of uh, the othering of the Chinese people. Uh, I mean, the other thing that is interesting and then one of the reasons why I, I did all these projects too is to really articulate that um, there are a lot of Chinese people here that are from the diaspora of mm. China, not from mainland. China. Mm. So the whole politics of authoritarianism in China now mm. uh, has nothing to do with a lot of people who are from the diaspora who's been out of China for several generations. Mm. You know, who, who's, who's lived in England, the States, so Australia. Very international community. Extremely international community. And the size of the Chinese diaspora is the, the size of, um, I think, uh, where is that? Uh, the state of California, <laughs> which is enormous. The GDP state. of California, yeah, you know? like it's huge. It's remarkable. Yeah, and it's you know always you know galling really to think that it was you know a Eurocentric government that had really only landed in Australia for the past hundred years, who were then passing this law of the White Australia policy. You know they had this m- minuscule second yes. on. Indigenous First Nations land, yes, and they one of the first things they could possibly think of to do was to have a white Australia policy as their, their <laughs> but the irony policy. also is some of the ringleaders in the Lemming Flat riots, uh, two of them became members of parliament and they were the people that initiated a white Australia policy, mm-hmm. so there was this like really interesting direct you know relationship there, and um, yet also you know it, what is also it's so difficult to get your head around is that you know Britain and Europe spent so many centuries engaging mm. with Asia with with China Japan yeah um, you know yeah. Korea yes. India everywhere and the cultural influences yeah and yet and, and that was such a, an important part of cultural diplomacy mm. and mm. yet we came, came up with this very blunt yeah. sort of law yeah. it's, it's a blunt end to yes. all of that that's right exactly so maybe um can you tell me in the researchers because uh, we have to sort of finish so which is a pity because there's so many things to talk about but mm. are there any sort of objects of great resonance that you came across in your research um because you are an artist and so therefore you work with a visual language um and, and it's difficult to get across that sense of the visual with these projects um, mm. so we will put some images on the mm. Facebook and Instagram page mm. um, but are there any sort of objects or artifacts that really well I must say the the uh, the diary of Zhang Asu is certainly something I think that that particular diary really symbolizes uh, a lot of issues related to translation to language and you know, the capacity to own uh, language to represent a particular ability of social movement. Uh, I think that that's a very interesting um, object. Uh, And that's why I guess I I also had that embroidered as well, Mm. Um, because I just really feel that it's it's remarkable. Uh, It's remarkable it survived. Yes. I mean, that's a miracle, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, I mean, um, oh, you know, I mean, I think that there are... There are still quite a lot of sort of um, objects, cultural objects, of course, in the Chinese museums and so on and so forth. Uh, 
but I feel that they are things that identify the cultural presence in the 19th century of the Chinese in Australia. Oh, well, for example, uh, there are other objects which are sort of culturally interesting and there's still a question mark about it, which was, for example, uh, the Kelly gang. Uh, Robbie Burns actually spoke a bit of Cantonese because they were buying opium, you know, from the Chinese. So he learnt the Cantonese he needed to know. He needed to know. <laughs> and uh, But the interesting thing about that was that there were these Japanese armors um, made out of bamboo that were actually brought out here by the Chinese. And the reason why they brought it out here was because there was a Sino-Japanese war mm. up in Manchuria earlier on. And some of these um, armors uh, worn by Japanese soldiers, you know, the bamboo ones that mm. have a slit in the eyes, you know, you can see through and things so forth. One of them, uh, several of them are actually brought out here. And, you know, there's this theory that Kelly's, um, uh, the, the, the actual armor that Ned Kelly uh, actually created out of steel was actually inspired by this Japanese armor. In fact, if you go to, I think, uh, a museum in, um, near Bright, they, they actually have this uh, Japanese armor but from that time face to face with a replica of the Kelly uh, armor, you know. Mm -hmm. So there is this sort of weird um, this sort of cross-cultural yeah, cross influence, yeah. if, you, if you want to put it that way, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. Also because it's such an iconic object, object. of Australian object, yes. so to speak. But yes. in fact, of course, it quite probably came from other sources. Yes. And that's a shared cultural... Um, ties and um, fl fluidity in the 19th century which we are you know really beginning to explore more now yes. um, that we realize that it's just not a static rigid period at all and it so much Absolutely. occurred yes. um, cross-culturally yes. well I shouldn't keep you any longer John because you've got very important work to do today in um, <laughs> delivering your gorgeous daughter to her first year at university but I'd like to thank you very much for coming to the Centre um, Honest um, China in the World at ANU and for speaking to me today about um, your history projects and the relationship between 19th century history and, and contemporary art. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure.